Jack, we talked with filmmaker Joe Wilson of The Vampire Mob, and we did a video interview series with him, and he was adamant that no one can make a viral video. Hmm. What's your take on that? Yeah, I don't think, well, I think it's probably the same thing about, like, you know, like, no one can necessarily go out and make a, a hit, or, or, you know, go out and make a monster hit. Like, that's what, that's what they want you to do. Go out and make something uber successful, but I don't think you can necessarily manufacture something to be viral. I, I think it's like the thing about it's it's like I've always said uh, you can't something that's is cool because it is. The second anybody tries to be cool, it's it's automatically uncool. You know, like straight away, like you can tell when somebody is trying to manufacture. So to try to create something or engineer something to be viral. I think most people will smell that as being inauthentic. And I think the thing that creates a viral thing is something that somebody feels that they've captured something and then just has to share it. Because whatever it is about that thing is so weird or so special or so whatever. And I think most people can detect if something is reverse engineered to be. That's, uh, that, that idea of reverse engineering is something that's thrown around in this digital space. Like you cannot reverse engineer a viral video. All you can try to do is is create something that is real or interesting enough and hope that it becomes viral. I think. I don't know. It'd be interesting to find out who's like sat down and like, you know, strategically made something and if it went viral, if they would even reveal that information. Like, ha ha ha, we got you. We made this like Frankenstein, you know. But I don't know. I don't personally I don't think it's that's that's the way to do it. What's your response to people who say, oh, YouTube's for kids? I mean, I think it's for kids now. I, I think it is. I, I think it's, um, I think most of what's on in the YouTube space that's popular is, is aimed at kids. But also I think the problem has been is that in the last, you know, couple of generations, um, media, any, any, all media has sort of been made for specific age groups. And that really wasn't the case when I was a kid. You know, when I was a kid growing up in the 70s, you watched what adults watched. You know what I mean? It was there was there were only a handful of channels. There's only so much programming. There's nothing compared to what's out there now. So if your parents watched All in the Family or Mash, which yeah. which by compare Rhoda, or Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart, any of those shows that by comparison would be considered adult shows, there wasn't any Nickelodeon. There wasn't anything. There wasn't Hannah Montana. There wasn't you know any of this stuff that's like targeted. So I think what happened is, is that kids became the beneficiary of watching stuff that wasn't necess that was a little bit above their own wherever they were, and you ended up reaching for that, or you ended up. I just remember thinking like, "Wow, I, that's what the adult. I want to be there. I want to. That's that's what it's going to be like when I'm, you know, going out or dating or married or having a job. That's going to be. I think, I think that's a good thing and a healthy thing. And I think that there's a lot of material that plays down. To kids, and then kids stay in that sort of, you know, sort of um, stunted place. So, yeah, YouTube is always going to be filled with, you know, I think my my wife said somebody stuck like cinnamon up their ass or something like that, or the, or drank cinnamon or something, and that's got eighty trillion. Like that's the that's the that's the content. Somebody drinking like a jar of cinnamon or something. I'm, I probably sound super old because this is probably like has eight jillion hits, but. That is different from, you know, an episode of All in the Family. It'd be interesting to see if we can graduate from cute kittens and people farting fire to something that actually has, um, that's worth watching over 20 seconds that actually 
is interesting and informative and, and, and entertaining. I think it can be that. Controlled YouTube can be that. But right now it's in its infancy in a lot of ways. Do you think, though, that's a symptom of our times? I mean, most of these kids have been around for September 11th when yeah. things pretty much changed. And they maybe want something that's lighter. Like when I was growing up, there was the show Family with Christy McNichol. Oh, totally. It I remember was Family. Great. It was yep. But I wonder if that's too heavy now because the world is actually a much heavier place in some maybe. sense. Maybe. Although, you know, when, when, you know, in the 70s, we were like, I remember we were still in Vietnam. We still had Watergate. The country was essentially, I mean, the, the, the time that birthed, like, the last great period of um, cinema, you know, or everybody's, you know, the consensus is the 70s was the last golden age, was the time of the, the dark, probably one of the darkest periods in this country in terms of people's sort of bubble bursting. Oh, political, uh, the president is a crook, and, you know, the war, and we're, we're losing a war, first war, and it's, it's for what? And, and um, although, you know, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq make you know Vietnam look like nothing comparatively. So maybe it is. I don't know. I think there's always been escapism. Uh, people always want you know whether it's during the Great Depression, people wanted you know musicals to disappear you know into. Um, but I also feel that if it only is that 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 the it's, it's sort of like the the collective intelligence level just gets lowered and lowered and lowered till we become like. You know, like like my judges feel like idiocracy, which is an underrated movie, but where you just become like this blob with like, you know, sitting in front of a monitor, which is just like, you know, violence and porn and having like, you know, liquid cheese fed into your mouth. I mean, you can, that's where it's going, you know, where we're going into this. If you don't have any real stimulus, and that doesn't mean it has to be heady, you know, esoteric entertainment. If it's just like, it can still be funny and smart. It can still be action and smart. Then you become brighter. It's like if you only read, if you only ever read a comic book, that's the level of your literature. That's your that's that's unless you're you know, a genius. If what you take in informs what you what you like and what you put out, and so you have to digest something of substance in order to be substantive in your own way. I think you know that's my thinking. On What's your process for creating each episode of Trailer Hitch? And tell us more about Trailer Hitch. Oh, well, Trailer Hitch is like the, you know, uh, Trailer Hitch is just something that I just super enjoy doing. Uh, mostly because Alan Havey, who plays kind of crotchety Uncle Al, is somebody, great actor, great comedian, you know, who's been in on everything from, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm to Louie, and he had his own show, Night After Night with Alan Havey, uh, which was sort of like, the evolution of the David Letterman show, really interesting, and he's done. A, he's, a, he's at the improv all day. He's a great, great, funny uh, comedian and actor. I've known him forever, and he's a hardcore movie geek. But he's also a generation older than myself, uh, and we've always had this sort of like, I don't know if it's a sort of a collision of generations, but we've always had this banter. Whenever we go see a movie together, which we do, or we watch a movie together, there's this thing that happens. And I don't pretend to be a comic like Alan. I mean, Alan is a professional comedian. And I prefer to be sort of the straight man to his, to his comic, you know, ability. So really, it just becomes about him kind of letting it rip with these kind of philosophies or attitudes about a genre, whether it's a zombie movie or a vampire movie or what he thinks that zombie, like in this next, in this episode of World War, we did on World War Z, which is the Brad Pitt sort of epic zombie movie coming out based on the book, which is a whole world, you know, swarming with zombies. 
uh, and we watched that trailer. You know, Alan's Uncle Al's response to zombies, zombies don't run. You know, zombies are slow and disoriented. And remember in the old days when zombies were just sort of stumbling and I'm trying to explain to him as a slightly younger viewer that since like 28 days later, zombies run and that it's not just walking, stumbling. And so this whole sort of natural banter kind of comes out as we watch these these trailers and it's very loose, it's very very improvised. What he does is we, we decide on a trailer that we want to review, uh, or not even review really, it's just kind of just observe and comment on. And then Alan goes home and essentially sort of bullet points, almost like punchlines, that he knows what he's going to get into. And then I just sort of set it up and just like really react to what he says, because what he said, what he tends to say, is usually fairly outlandish. So all I have to do is go, huh, or what? You know, like I'm basically like Bud Abbott to his Luke Costello. He can just go crazy and I'll just go, like, give a look. And that's really, that's really how we do it. So we just kind of, literally, we come into this room here and we set up like just two mics and we plug in, we put earphones, we share earphones, we look at the trailer on a laptop and then we just let it run and then we just, we run it like three or four times and we just do it. And then I just end up editing the best bits together. And then we send it to an animator Oliver Deer, who was uh, actually my art director on Some Guy Who Kills People, he did all the illustrations, all the comic book illustrations on Some Guy. Um, and he animates it for us, so he animates it to the audio track. And then we sort of just come back here and put it all together. But it's, uh, it's fun, it's like it's not so much scripted as just sort of a recorded conversation, or sometimes a rant, you know, sometimes. So. They had a, he had a funny take on people that watched The Hobbit. Like they, they all eat oh. fruit and they smell funny and they, they right. couldn't get a job at the Renaissance Fair or something like that. It was right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's so funny. The Hobbit, you know, the thing is, is that The Hobbit, it's so interesting. We talk about YouTube. We did this episode on The Hobbit. And I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, you know, and I, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big fan. And, um, and it's interesting because... Uncle Al's take on The Hobbit is exactly what you're talking about. Like, what is this? You know, what are these dwarves and elves and what is that? You know, it's like it's like an old, like like oh, like very much like an Archie Bunker, like a, just a, a sort of like uh, semi-ignorant character who has no problem, like you know, pontificating and spouting whatever, even if he doesn't really know about it, or even if he does know about it. But so many Hobbit fans or Lord of the Rings fans or like t took offense. They're like, I hate Uncle Al, and he doesn't know well, who. How dare you say anything? And it's like, you know, it's a cartoon. You know, it's not, it's not like, it's not like somebody coming out and and uh, it's a comedy piece. So it's interesting to see how passionate. You know, for me, like if you love something, it's okay to make fun of it. I mean, it's actually better to make fun of something that you love. Um, but it's interesting to see how protective people are of it. So um, I keep seeing different comments. Some people are like take it easy, this is really funny, you know, this is not meant to offend Lord of the Rings fans, and I'm constantly saying, hey, look, I'm a fan, I know, you know, Uncle Al's just a character, you know, he, you know, so, it's interesting, it's very interesting. So you reply to these uh, comments? I do, you know, it's funny, I, ordinarily I wouldn't, and, and, uh, but part of the, um, part of the, the whole YouTube experience, and again, I'm a newbie in this world, uh, is sort of the um, communication or engagement. I think that's one of the things that's different about television, or certainly different from television, is that there is a communication that goes on between the people who make the shows and the people who watch the shows, in that on any given YouTube video, there's obviously a million comments if something is interesting or, or inflammatory, whatever people comment, and uh, YouTube actually encourages the people who make the videos, at least for their premium channels, to engage 
because that that's part of the experience is 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 saying you know hey you know this is what we meant or you know like or thanks for some some people just leave very nice comments and you're like thanks you know for watching and you know next week we're going to do this movie and so I think that's part of that world. But uh, I'm so used to movies where basically, you know, making a movie, you put it out there and maybe you read a couple of reviews and as long as somebody doesn't send you, you know, dog shit in the mail or, or a hate letter or something, then that's basically it. That's the end of the communication, you know, so, so, yeah. Jack, since you say you are new to YouTube, uh, I'm not sure if you remember back in like maybe 2007, 2008 when it seems like it was easier to get views. It's a very competitive space now, and I know we talked about it yeah. briefly. What are you coming up against? Because your, you know, your trailer has just gotten a lot of views. I mean, it's not easy to get. You have one that has like eighteen thousand views. Yeah, well, like yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I think that um, you know you can put because this is a company. The benefit of, of of doing something at a company is that the company, you know, will have some marketing money to promote. So there's there's money in house or in the company to promote certain things, and you sort of have it's not like a bottomless bucket of money. You just have to say, okay, we're gonna take a little bit of money and promote this episode of Trailer Hitch or this episode of Badass Digest or, or what have you. And um, not everything gets the same sort of marketing push. So something that has a little bit of marketing behind it, it's like an independent movie. Like if you have some money to submit to festivals or some money to make a poster, or even if you have a little bit of money to like book a theater and screen it for one night, that gives you the edge over over a filmmaker who has nothing and is just sort of hoping that somebody discovers their movie. Um, but I don't know. I think it's infinitely I think it's infinitely competitive. I think it's like worse than any other media platforms, worse than TV, it's worse than movies, simply because anybody, anybody can put something on YouTube. So it's this ocean or this galaxy of, 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 of stuff. That means that there's like probably tons of really cool stuff out there. There's also tons of really bad stuff out there. And then it becomes like, well, how does a viewer, including myself, how do you find it? How, how, do, you, how do you find it? And you're relying upon somebody to point you in that direction. I don't, think, I don't think there are many of us who necessarily click on something because we see an ad for a video. Usually it's somebody says, hey, like, check this out. Like, or you gotta see this. Or maybe if you're searching for something, you can, in a search bar. But it is this sort of random, sort of very sort of like, check this out thing. And I don't know, I, I, it's, a mis it's sort of a mystery to me. I mean, I think if YouTube puts your video up on its main page, which is the equivalent of like, you know, being on the cover of a magazine, then you're guaranteed to get more clicks. But, uh, I don't know. I don't. I. I just sort of hope. I mean, the philosophy has always been: if you make great content, that uh, it will find an audience. And I think I have to believe in that because that's the only thing I can really control. Like, and that goes for any whether I'm making a film or or, or a TV show or whatever. You cannot control what an audience is going how an audience is going to react, whether they're going to come. And even if you make a big movie and you advertise the shit out of it and you spend 80 zillion dollars on, on TV commercials and billboards and, you know, magazine ads, that doesn't mean on Friday night that you're 
you know, you can't literally pick them up with a forklift and put them into the theater. You still, there's this intangible thing about like, well, eh, it's raining, I don't want to go. You know, like, so it's a weird thing. I don't, I don't know. I, I just, I, all I can do is make, hopefully make something that's, I'm happy with, and hopefully <laughs> it gets shared enough so that people get to know about it and, and watch it, you know. But I don't know. I really don't know. It's so much stuff out there. So tell us about YouTube. How do you find yourself in this space in your career? It's weird. Uh, I'm suddenly a suit, uh, which is very uh, uh, alarming sometimes to be on the other side of the table. Um, it's funny because in the first couple of weeks here, you know, I'm, I'm the lead programmer or the lead creative executive for Cinefix, even though I do direct uh, trailer Hitch and I do direct Badass Digest, which is more instinctive a thing for me to go out and make the shows and edit the shows than it is for me to preside in an executive position, even though that's my role. Um, I've never been in more meetings in my life. You know, that's a lot, there's a lot of, you know, here's the funny thing. Here's the thing that I think is very interesting. Um, every meeting I ever went to where I pitched something, whether it was a film idea or a television idea, you know, I probably spent the whole week at least prepping for this meeting. And you go in there and it's, you care so much and you're sitting there with these people on the other side of the desk and you're pitching your thing. And then, you know, the, the, the odds are that nine times out of 10, you know, no one says, hey, you got a deal. I mean, that never, I mean, I think once in my entire career, once or twice in my entire career did I actually pitch something that actually got like picked up. And I was saying this to my wife, I, I, I wonder, I wish I had calculated, I wish I had had the nerve to write down every meeting I've ever been to. As a, as a filmmaker going in to try to get something done, because it's probably millions of them. And so the, the percentage is crazy. You know, you're always, there's so many things that go nowhere. All right, so the point is now I'm on the other side, just for this year, and people are coming in to pitch their stuff, and now I'm suddenly one of these jerk-offs on the other side of the table, you know, listening. And what I realize is that all those times that I pitched something that it didn't get picked up, and I took it personally, where I was like, oh, they don't like me, or my idea is not good enough, or I suck, or whatever. It's like the least, it's the most impersonal thing in the world, because an executive has got so much crap. So much, that's all they do is go to meetings all day long. There's so many things that they're dealing with that what you consider the most important part of the day, which is you pitching this thing, is like a blip to the executive. So unless what you're offering is exactly this, it's like every production company or every studio has like a couple of like puzzle pieces that it's very specific shaped puzzle pieces that they're looking to fit. And if what you're pitching doesn't fit exactly this and tick those buttons, it's a no. It's going to be a no every time. And I always was like, oh god, I mean, I, this is I'm so depressed. And it's not that at all. It's just that I suddenly am able to see that number one, executives don't really care about your dreams and your hopes and how important the idea is to you. All I care about is whether or not what you're selling fits exactly whatever their little thing is that they're trying to do. And they, maybe they don't even know what that is. And uh, I found myself in the first few weeks, and I still do it, trying to tell to the people who are pitching that I'm not one of these guys. Like, I'm you. You know, like, and it's very hard to do in a meeting to say, well, you know, you might think I'm this suit, but I'm actually more you than I am this thing that you think I am. And I am so deathly afraid of people perceiving me as this, you know. Part of the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But it is a crazy, it is like two separate, it's just two different universes operating on the executive side. And, and, and to a certain degree, I understand why so little gets done, really, because there's a lot of weighing of, is this worth doing? And is this going to yield this result? And is this going to, how is this going to impact the brand of the company? And all this like hesitation because there's so much money at stake. Whereas when you're a creative person, all you're interested in doing is birthing this idea. And that's, what's, that's what feeds the creative person. What feeds the executive is that their job is secure and that they don't make a bonehead decision that gets them fired. And that whatever they put their name on is successful in financial terms. Whereas a creative person, sure, they want to be rich and famous and all that shit, you know. But for the most part, it's always about is, is this idea going to be created in a way that satisfies me as an artist? You know, and at least that's for that's how I think about it. And so it's like wearing these two different hats, it's like being Jekyll and Hyde or something. It's like this weird, very strange thing to do. You the know? Hobbit people versus <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Some, some, yeah. Yeah, it's it's, but it's an it's given me an insight into the. It's sort of like someone like it's like behind the curtain. You know, like it, I never would have known. How it, I mean, I, I always knew how it worked, but I never really s stepped in the shoes of an executive, nor did I really want to. And I think part of it has to do with me not wanting to be that executive that I wanted to assassinate, you know. Uh, and there's more of those than there are the kindly, you know, empathetic, interesting executives. So if I'm going to be one of those, I would prefer to be the latter, just so that, you know, I'm, you know, well thought of during this process, you know. Um, but it's a very it's a very unique position to be in. Jack, I believe on our show from Courage when you came into the studio, you talked about Orson Welles briefly, and you talked about how he mentioned this ninety ten rule right. about filmmaking, and that ninety percent of it is hustling and ten percent of it is creativity. You know, and in following Orson Welles' story recently, I've become very intrigued with him. What do you think it was that was his sort of downfall? aside from maybe addiction or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he was basically handed the keys at right. a very young age. He was sort of a child prodigy. And things didn't turn out as you would think that they would in the end for him. Yeah, no, Orson Welles' story is a, um, is a really interesting one. It's funny because I think I remember a Spike Lee interview where they asked him why he was so into being a businessman and why at the, I think at the time he had a store and all these things and he was making commercials. And, he said something about he never wanted to wind up selling wine as an old man, you know, which is what Wells ended up doing, basically, you know, kind of shilling, maybe selling wine as a, as, a, as a personality in a commercial, as opposed to making all the films that he should have been allowed to make. Um, in fact, I think Wells' quote about 90% hustling and 10% creativity in filmmaking is probably, I think he actually probably even said it was less, probably said it was 95% um, hustling, but uh, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think that people resented him from the beginning because he did, he was given this, this sort of creative autonomy that nobody got, ever. I mean, he came into town as a radio celebrity and was given by RKO, you know, carte blanche. Like, make anything you want as long as it's this budget. Star in it, write it however you want. We're not going to give you any notes. Just make it. And you've got all these directors who had been in town, you know, had been making films since The Silence for 25 years, and they're like, who's this little shit kid who gets, 20-something kid that gets 
all the all the creative control in the world and I still have to like listen to studio notes and I've made 50 movies and you know and I've got to like recut my movie per you know Louis B. Mayer or whatever and so I think people resented him and it's like anything and, and they, they when when you resent somebody like that and he has power like you like you we want him to fail um, I also think a part of it has to do with the fact that Citizen Kane was such a monumental achievement the first time out of the gate that it was impossible for him to match that level of uh, that power that came out of out of Citizen Kane. Even though his subsequent movies are all fantastic in and of themselves, it's it's like you make the you make the towering achievement and then it's all downhill from there. I think he always he always said that. You know, it's very difficult to make your best work first because how do you how do you how do you follow that? But I think that people unfairly said that he was. Um, somebody who, who went over budget and over schedule because actually if you look at the documentation he was actually um, very frugal and very he wasn't this crazy you know out of control genius uh, which makes the story even more tragic you know one of the things that always upset me was that when uh, he was older and still trying to get financing that you know people like Spielberg would spend you know million dollars on the rosebud sled you know to buy as a personal memento i can't remember how much it was but it was a lot of money but he they wouldn't help him get a movie made so they admired him and yet they weren't able to executive produce orson welles's lad maybe his last movie I mean, it wasn't like he was asking for zillions of dollars um so he remains this tragic figure and uh and infinitely interesting because he was such a brilliant filmmaker because he had such a command of the medium. I mean, there are very few filmmakers where you feel that they have like complete command over the medium. There's some directors that are actors directors, there's some directors that are visual directors, there's some directors that have no idea how to edit or, or use sound, and this was clearly a man who intuitively had this um, way with film and all in all its various aspects. So that's why they're so alive. All those, even the ones that fail are interesting because there's always something going on. I'm wondering, with that failure, do you think that's a very common thread that people self-sabotage because they do get set up, or there is resentment, and they they almost feel guilty? Maybe it's funny when you look at people who. It's interesting to look at the films, the second films of people that have made monster hits. Like I've always looked at, like for example, William Friedkin, who like you know, had the success of The French Connection and The Exorcist, and then was basically given, again, like carte blanche, like, okay, you're, you're made these monster commercial critical hits, make whatever you want, I don't care how much it costs. And he makes a movie called Sorcerer, which is this remake of this, of the great uh, Henri Clouseau film, Wages of Fear, about, about desperate men driving nitroglycerin through a jungle with Roy Scheider. Two studios made, it took two studios to finance Sorcerer. Nobody knows that movie. Nobody, and that's like a gigantic movie. And it's actually a very, very good movie. But you get the feeling like, why are you calling it Sorcerer? I mean, the word Sorcerer makes it sound like it's about wizards and stuff. And uh, it had Roy Scheider at the top of his popularity. It's a big action adventure picture um, with incredible set pieces and suspense. And nobody gave a shit. Nobody saw that movie. It's like, killed it. And the same thing happened obviously with Michael Cimino, you know, he makes Deer Hunter and then you follow it with this, you know, the biggest disaster of all time, Heaven's Gate, you know, so there maybe is something, 
I think probably maybe there maybe there's a degree of self-sabotage or guilt, but there's also this kind of like um, okay, now I'm gonna like now that I have the power, I'm going to make the thing I always wanted, and maybe that thing isn't necessarily the most commercial thing, which is how Hollywood measures success. So I'm grateful for, for movies like Sorcerer and Heaven's Gate because you get to see something realized that would, would never have been realized had these directors not made these super popular movies. But I, oddly enough, these are, like, these are like the things that kill sometimes careers. So I don't know. I haven't been, <laughs> haven't been in a situation yet where I was, made something that I was so successful that I decided to destroy my own career with the next film. You know, maybe, hopefully I get there, then I can do that, yeah. Jack, for anyone interested in studying the craft of filmmaking, what films would you recommend that they sit down and watch over and over again? Wow, which films to, to study craft? Well, there's so, I mean, that's like, that's a tough one, but I do think, you know, we were talking about Wells, it's important to watch the films that, where you see all the various aspects of film, again, cinematography, staging of actors, editing, sound, music, where all of these things are sort of firing on all cylinders. I mean, that's the most practical way. Rather, if you look at, you could, if you see a ton, if you watch movies all the time, then of course you can focus on certain movies that are like more performance-based. Like if you're interested in performance and how to create naturalistic, um, almost documentary style uh, performance, then you could look like, you don't have to look any farther than someone like Mike Lee and look at Mike Lee's films, which again, a lot of them are visually beautiful, but they're all about like capturing real moments between people. But if you want to understand all the components of film, then you have to study people who master all of these areas. So there are a handful of people who are like, you know, there's a ton of them, but you know, obviously Alfred Hitchcock comes to mind right away because this was, again, somebody who had complete command over the medium. This wasn't an actor's director, this wasn't a visual director only like Michael Bay. This was someone who knew how to use everything. So to watch, I, I say, I tell my students this, watch Alfred Hitchcock from like, when he was making films in England, you know, like even, you can see him start with the silent films, but even if you start with something like, you know, like, like The Lady Vanishes or The 39 Steps, you know, which are just as funny and interesting and visually stunning as anything, you know, he made later or any recent films for that matter. If you watch all of Hitchcock, you'll be a better filmmaker. Like you could sit down and watch a Hitchcock movie a week and, and, and you watch everything. And you'll watch, you know, you watch, you know, obviously Vertigo and Rear Window and Notorious and North by Northwest and Psycho and The Birds and, and, and Shadow of a Doubt and Spellbound. If you watch all those movies, you'll be a better filmmaker. If you watch Scorsese, you know, sort of like soup to nuts. If you watch, like, say, from Mean Streets on, and you take in, you know, all of his movies, Alice doesn't, the variety of movies, Alice doesn't live here anymore, and Taxi Driver, and, you know, not just his gangster pictures like Goodfellas and Casino, but you take everything in. Uh, you, again, you learn from somebody who cares about everything that's going on in the frame, picture and sound, everything. Um, I think those two, I think Scorsese and, 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 and Hitchcock, if you're coming in like cold, is a great place to start. And then you can start to realize, you know, then you start to see that, I mean, there's a huge gamut. I mean, there's so many filmmakers, you know, you can start anywhere. You can go start with Bergman, you can start with Ford, you know. Um, but I think those two, I think that's the place to really start to get a grasp of, that's where you become really aware of camera and camera movement and atmosphere and blocking and composition because 
they're all couched in very entertaining pieces of cinema. And they're, they're not so much calling attention to themselves, but they're not, and Wells, again, and Wells for that matter. Uh, it's not subtle filmmaking. It's very dynamic filmmaking. And that's like a way of learning when you first see like the, the bold strokes. And then once you recognize those things and how they're, how they're being, how effective they are, then you can start to examine subtler filmmakers and you can start to recognize those same techniques being applied in a much um, un more unobtrusive way for that matter. I think, you know, it's crazy. It's, it's a difficult question because you want to include everybody. And I would say Kurosawa, you know, okay. All right, I would say Hitchcock, Scorsese, Kurosawa. Watch all of those, be, be a better filmmaker. How important is it for filmmakers to keep up with the latest trends in camera technology. I mean, has it been a habit of yours to, you know, check out DSLR Weekly or...? No, but I mean, I think it's important. I think it's important to be aware of what, what new tools and toys are out there, just because it, 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 there may be a thing that you want to do that's in your head that you're not able to execute. It's funny because I was just at the Kubrick exhibit, which you should totally go. It's a great uh, exhibit at at Lachma on Kubrick, and uh, I was there. One and everything is there. You know, every, all all this documentation, all these letters and storyboards and everything. It's so cool. But one of the things I noticed was there was a letter from I can't remember who was producing at the time. A letter to Kubrick from a producer friend saying, "I just saw this amazing thing. It's this device that enables." Uh, the camera to be free floating on an operator and you can follow people downstairs and up, up hills and the camera remains stable and I think this will be an incredible, you should check this thing out. And it, basically he was talking about, basically he was talking about the Steadicam before it was the Steadicam. And it was like, and the letter was, Stanley you need to see this because I think you're going to, these are, they're shots that you have in your head that you, up to now you couldn't, couldn't achieve. But now with this thing you can. You know, so in in a way, I think it's um, it's really important because um, it helps you realize the things that that are in your mind better. Um, the problem is is that sometimes that technology is not affordable. Like there are millions of shots that I would do that that I would like to do that I would do with a techno crane, which is a great piece of equipment, which is essentially a telescoping arm. So like if you wanted to do a dolly move. Uh, or like, you know, I'm trying to think of movies where that really use it well. Like uh, in, in the thin red, thin red Line, there's a lot of shots where they're like assaulting this kind of, uh, this hill with like foliage blowing and they're following the troops up the hill. And it's this rock steady sort of uh, tracking shot where you're tracking, you know, with these soldiers as they crawl up this hill. And you realize, well, it can't be a dolly move because how do you lay dolly track up a mountain? And it's not really a steady cam shot. It's, and what it is, it's a telescoping arm. So that means the camera's on an arm that literally telescopes out like this. It gets longer and longer, and you can follow people that way. It's, it's, you can do incredible shots. You can go through windows. In other words, you could be outside a house, and you could be pushing it on the house, and go literally like right through the window into the living room. That's a super expensive piece of equipment. I can never afford that. You know, I got in the low-budget movies that I've made. I'm like, this would be great for the techno crane, but I can't afford it. So then I have to reconceive the shot to to work with the equipment that I do have or design it in a way that it'll, it'll work with an edit or something like that, which can also be fun creatively. But um, for me, the, the magazine that I read all the time and I still read is American Cinematographer. American Cinematographer, which again, it is what it is. It sounds like it's a journal of cinematography, but it just features whatever is coming out 
but from the perspective of the DP, and that's really good for directors, because I think all strong directors essentially need to be as bright and as informed as their own DP in order to visualize, in order to direct the cinematographer. Um, and that, that magazine every month is loaded with just like, this is the lens we use, this is the, this is the piece of grip equipment we use, these are the lights we use, they include charts. So for a film student or filmmaker, it's a great, really in-depth technical behind-the-scenes uh, journal. And you can get it anywhere, or get a subscription, or you can get it online. It's a great, great, I still refer to that all the time. It's like a, it's a, it's a film geeks, techno geeks look at, uh, at, what, at, at how movies are made. Uh, it's almost like the, yeah, it's like the techno geek version of Entertainment Weekly. You know, instead of like, oh, well, this is what she was wearing, this is who she was dating. It's like this is we were using this particular wide-angle lens, and it was on this, you know, shot maker car that we blah 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 blah. So it's all very technical, and it's cool. It's very cool. In a recent interview with filmmaker David O. Russell, I believe he admitted that the most difficult place for him as a director was sort of being in this position where he didn't know what film he was going to make next. Mm. The sort of unknown territory. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever found yourself in this position? And if so, what did you do? Yeah, I, I have. I have found myself not knowing what I should do next. Um, I was never one of these guys, I was never one of these filmmakers, and I always envied these guys that had like this, I've got a stack of screenplays behind, I got, I, I got stories for the rest of my life that I want to make, they're all ready to go. Like, I never, I was never prolific that way as a writer, and Inevitably, I've had, and I'm facing it right now, really. Um, the movies that I ended up making that were more personal to me, you know, like the handful of movies, like The Big Empty or La Cucaracha or Some Guy Who Kills People, one of my last movies. Whenever I finished those movies, it was never like I had this thing necessarily on deck that I was burning to make. In other words, when it was done, it was almost like, what next? Or, okay, you know, I mean, I have things I want to do, but it's it's interesting. I think when you make a movie that's important, it's filling this space or this hole in your life or this or this need to figure something out. So you're dealing with it through this particular project. And then it's not like, okay, now I just have this other big thing I need to deal with, so I'll move on to the... It, 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 it doesn't seem to work that way for me. So I, right now, uh, I know I want to make a movie. Ryan and I, Ryan, Ryan and I want to make another movie, and we've been talking about ideas since we wrapped *Some Guy Who Kills People*. And there are definitely some that are more propulsive and more interesting than others. But it's not like we've like we knew like okay, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. It was like I think part of it has to be about finding the thing that's necessary to make in a way. Um, I think the best pieces of work or art come out of something that is like personally necessary, something that you need to like deal with or figure, like I said, sort of explore. It's not even about like I want to make a movie about racism or I want to make a movie about, it's about like this is what's going on in my life, this is what's bothering me, can I find a story that somehow articulates that. That's not an easy thing to do. If you're a journeyman director, it's you can just go do on to the next script, whatever it is. And, and like I made a movie after Some Guy Who Kills People that was totally like, uh, well, we, you made that Mega Shark movie and you could do something like that and we like you and we know you can handle it, do you want to do this thing? And it's like, here's a paycheck. And I'm like, yeah, I like this kind of thing, I'll do it. But it's a big, it's a different thing from coming up with that thing that you need to make. You know, I have higher hopes for films that I have to make than ones that I'm hired to make. 
because I feel like those are the best where I can do my best stuff. So I totally understand that um, void, excuse me, or limbo that can occur after you make a movie. I mean, look at Kubrick, Not and I believe me, the last thing I'm doing is comparing myself to him, but what I'm saying is that there's, there's probably a reason why he made so few movies, is because he was carefully weighing what his next thing was going to be. Like, why am I making this thing? Because Kubrick could have made triple the amount of movies he made. Um, he certainly would have gotten the funding, but he was, look at that, this is a guy who could have made anything. Most of us are like, uh, okay, well, if you know, like if someone said to me now, uh, okay, well, fuck all that, like, trying to search and find what you want. I've got a bucket of money here that you can make a movie, but you got to make it next month. I'd be like, okay, I suddenly have the inspiration. I know exactly what I'm going to make. So uh, Kubrick was in a position where he could have made any movie he wanted almost at any point. I mean, after he made Spartacus or 2001, he could make anything he wanted. People were, like, clamoring. And he spent years between projects because for whatever reason, his process was, I've got to find the perfect thing to do. I think that's, that may be part of the neurosis of, of the, the creative person is trying to figure out what you're going to paint next unless you're just brimming. I wish I was just brimming with, you know, ideas, but, you know, so I think it's a different type of personality. What is your process for all of that? Like, are you taking long walks in the forest, <laughs> contemplating, I mean, or just observing people in daily life? What, what, what do you do when you're in that space? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily like writer's block necessarily, um, but it is sort of like that. I mean, in, in the case of working with Ryan on the next, on the follow-up movie to Some Guy Who Kills People, it's about us kind of finding the project that we both feel in other words, I guess it would be slightly different if I was just sitting down and writing something because I could say, okay, all right, this is what's on, on my mind now. I'll see if I can, I'm feeling, you know, whatever I'm feeling. So I'll, let me try to find something that, that fits that mood. Um, with Ryan, because we had such an interesting collaboration, um, even though Some Guy Who Kills People and uh, the script was so, I was so sort of wedded to it. I was so like, this is the thing I need to make. You know, Ryan has went through his own process to make, to write that thing. I wasn't there during the writing of that movie. I came in at the end when it was already sort of realized. Ryan has to go through his own process of him finding. So not only am I like in that limbo, he is too. You know, he's trying to find the thing. So sometimes he'll throw out an idea, just working it out. Like, well, what about this thing? And I'll be like, oh, this is fantastic. This is exactly what I want to do. But he may not be as crazy about it as another idea, which I'm not so much into. So there's this weird sort of process we're going through now where it's like, well, what about this? Can we show each other what's interesting in, in these ideas that we're floating about? I don't know. I, I think that um, the only way to get through the process is to... I think sometimes it's, it's helpful doing, like, for example, trailer hitch. It's helpful doing trailer... It's helpful doing small things. I think even doing an interview, uh, doing a, a really short, it doesn't even have to be a short film, it could just be like a, a one minute long thing where you go out and shoot something. I think that the more that you can sort of exercise that muscle, um, that filmmaking muscle, and actually go out and try some things. Like for example, like my, um, my sister-in-law's uh, had a birthday, and I'm never really good at coming up with presents for, a, I don't know what to buy anybody, and I can't write a card, but I can make these little like, like almost like South Park style animations that I make into a card, you know, and 
that is a creative, like making a, like spending a couple hours making a, like a little animated card for my sister-in-law is a really good way of like oiling up, lubing up the, the gears. So I think a writer, like they'll say a writer writes, like the important things, if you're a writer, you get up and you write, even if you don't know what you're writing about, just to kind of, because chances are if you just keep doing this thing, it is the equivalent of taking a long walk in the woods, except you're shooting or you're typing while you're doing it. It's like something will come out, a word, a phrase, an image will come, and then it'll be like, hopefully that'll trigger the larger, the larger thing. I think that's the way to do it. Otherwise, all I do is brood or worry. If you just worry, like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? Like nothing comes from that. I've done enough of that, I do that anyway. So I think it's important to, to just almost like shoot it out or type it out, you know, because it's out there. It's just, you gotta arrive at it and sitting about it and, Worrying about it isn't going to get you there necessarily. Also, I should be meditating more. I learned a trick. Well, it's not really a trick. It's a whole lifetime. It's a whole life experience. But like one of the things when I was hunting for ideas was I was I learned about David Lynch and and transcendental, transcendental meditation. You know, TM, which is this whole other thing. But like one of the reasons that one of the reasons why David Lynch is such a proponent of, of meditating is that that's where the ideas surface. In other words, you just calm your mind down so that you're not like all the days shit isn't spinning through your mind, then the things that are naturally important to you, the idea of being the things that are naturally interesting will bubble up and then ideas come from that, you know? So that's another thing that I need to continue to do. I did started doing it actually around the time I was making Megashark versus Giant Octopus doing meditation and it really helped. A lot of things came out of that. So it's everybody's process is different, but it's, um, it certainly is a process. I wish it was a faster one. So I believe you've launched Trailer Hitch under the umbrella of Cinefix? Yes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what role Cinefix has played and what impact they've had on the success so far? Well, Cinefix is the premium YouTube channel dedicated to film. Uh, or basically it's, it's, it's the channel that's dedicated to movie lovers and also filmmakers. And the idea is to create programming that's going to appeal to you know, movie ge geeks like myself, and also people maybe who make their own movies, and so it's like anything. It's like trying to come up with uh, material that appeals, um, that'll speak to that viewer. Um, and so we have a whole bunch of different kind of shows. I mean, the two sort of like Trailer Hitch is sort of like is definitely more of a uh, a comedy based. Uh, observational sort of comedy show you know but it's funny it was born out of like the fact that uh, trailers uh, for movies that are coming out are sort of like available to us like we want to promote what's coming out but it's sort of even though we just put trailers up it's not really adding any kind of editorial editorial voice to it so to, so, so, so I thought it would be great to sort of and that's what really what Beavis and Butthead Mike Judge was basically like I'm at MTV we have all these videos we're running them anyway why don't we stick these two crazy losers on top of it and have them like talk about it? And that's essentially the the idea behind Trailer Hitch is to have like two different sort of generations of movie lover. One slightly younger played by myself and one slightly older played by Alan Havey. And um, and so that's where that idea came out of. But we also have Badass Digest, which is um, Devin Faraci's uh, successful website, which is really all about um, movies and movie trivia and movie facts and um, I, I, I almost want to say like you know almost like fanboy cinema where you're dealing with um, with 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 very specific genre films and um, and very detail oriented very much something that speaks to the movie geek 
which I consider myself one of. Um, and now Devin goes out and he basically hosts this show where he brings his website to life, where we'll go and sit down with Ryan Johnson, the director of Looper, in Bob Burns' basement. And Bob Burns is like the foremost archivist of all great cinema, uh, sci-fi, and, and horror props. Like he has all the props from all the great movies. Uh, he has, you know, all the alien Jim Cameron's Aliens, and he has, you know, Gizmo from Gremlins, and he has, you know, the American Werewolf in London. Um, and he has he has the original King Kong armature, you know Peter Jackson. So we would we'll go to a place like that and show people like, wow, look look at all this great stuff. Look at this man. Let's sit down and interview this man, who's preserved all this stuff. And then at the same time, we'll maybe bring Ryan Johnson, who directed Looper, who's also a geek, and he'll he'll see this world for the first time. And then we'll talk to him about Looper and time travel movies in front of like the original time machine, which Bob has, like the original George Pal, you know. Rod Taylor time machine. So it's like it's trying to bring these sort of like, uh, and I use this term lovingly, you know, film geek culture sort of to life. Um, and so we, we're doing a whole bunch of shows like that. Hopefully we'll end up doing scripted shows as well. Um, but it's a, it's, we're, we're, we're brand new, you know, we're a brand new channel and we're just, I'm just trying to get out stuff that I think, stuff that I would like to see. You know, and uh, I think that's the only thing I can do is try to create programming that I think you know I would hopefully want to sit down and watch, and and then maybe people will also you know watch it, watch it, and <laughs> take an interest. Um, but it's weird trying to navigate that that whole space, and it's not easy. It's like saying, well, let's just make a bunch of programs. You know, that's that's really. Um, we also have Ben Lyons coming in and hosting a show called Screen Addict, which is sort of like a um, a show that's sort of everything that's going on in the week in film. Um, so it's a very active, it's a very active channel where we're constantly producing, you know. So it's it's interesting, very hectic, like a newspaper, like putting out a newspaper. Jack, how has independent film evolved since you started, and where do you see it heading? Well, that's a good question. Um, I always felt like when I started to make my films, independent movies, which were probably at the early '90s, was sort of like the in a way, it's sort of the tail end of a of the first wave of independent cinema. In other words, like when I was in film school in the '80s, that's when you started to see, you know, Jim Jarmusch really starting to make you know waves and Spike Lee and 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 uh, and Hal Hartley and all these kind of. It was like sort of like the first wave of of independent. And then, like in the middle '90s, it sort of became much more commercialized as people studios realized it's like co-op thing. It's like anything. It's like when they realized that oh, you can make a movie for under a million dollars and they can make a ton of money, well let's like do that, you know, so you sort of corporatized and it became a different a different world and it became a star driven world, you know, where now suddenly somebody calls, you know, Little Miss Sunshine an independent movie and it's like, well, you know, if it's you know, if it's over a million dollars and Greg Kinnear and Alan Arkin are in your movie, it's not really you know, I mean you can call it an independent movie. I mean look who's at Sundance, which was supposed to be, you know, what it was supposed to be. It's like none of those movies are like, don't ha not have stars or or even already have distributors. So that's a different. That's a that, that I think that it changed. Um, I think what's interesting is now that more people are able to make movies, and because you can self-distribute on YouTube and so forth, that that's really hopeful because it used to be like you made your movie, and if you didn't get a distributor, then you know what he saw. Now as many people as you can get it to can see it in a very clean, pristine form. Um, so, I mean, a lot of people have talked about that. That's, that's, that's nothing new. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if people are going to... 
I don't think people are going to make that same jump anymore. Like everybody thought, well, I'll make a little movie and then I'll become a big, and I'll become Steven Spielberg. I don't know if that necessarily happens anymore. I think there's just too many filmmakers and there's too many technically proficient filmmakers. Um, so where it's going, I don't know. I, I think there'll be more independent movies. There's certainly more independent movies made, which is great. Uh, the trick is always going to be distribution, and it's like music. It's like we're, there, there's a million great bands out there. How do I know where to find them? Unless somebody it goes back to your question about like how do you get people to click on your thing? I think you just hope that somebody sees it, and that one person passes it, and that next person passes it. Maybe the next person he passes it to has a blog with a lot of people following, and then it just sort of disseminates. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I would love to see, I think because more is getting made, the chances are that there's more good stuff out there. It's just that now it's going to be a question of somebody hopefully pointing me in the direction and saying, hey, you should check this out. I'm stealing a Hollywood Reporter question here, but what would you say to a 22-year-old Jack Perez in 2012 and in 2013? Uh, what would I tell him? So get ready because you're going to get your ass kicked all up and down the street for about 20 years. So you better, you know, you better be ready to get beat up, you know, because I mean, and that's nothing new. I mean, everybody does. Uh, if I had told myself what I was going to go through, I wonder, I don't know, I don't know if I, I don't think I would not, would not have done it, but it's like, I, I just think it's a, you know, it's a tough business. And, 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 and it helps you in the beginning to be ignorant because that naivety protects you. That sort of like hopefulness protects you and it actually enables you to create stuff, um, which is great. Um, but you also have to be ready for the reality of the business, which is that, you know, there's a lot of people out there all trying to do the same thing. And, you know, even if you're talented, that doesn't mean that you're going to be rewarded and you have to find a way to I would say to a young filmmaker that it's important to define in your mind going into it what success means. That's the thing that I think I messed up. I associated success with, you know, whether I was going to get hired again, whether if I made an independent movie and then a studio hired me to make a movie, that means that I'm successful. That means I'm approved. Or that if my movie got picked up by a distributor or got picked up by Sundance or a festival, a big festival, that is success because that means that I've been like knighted or stamped. That's like the biggest mistake anybody can make because success, that's subjective. I mean, who are these people at Sundance that are deciding what gets in? Who, who are these people? I mean, they're not like these mystical, magical people. They're just people and they have their own agendas. And that doesn't mean that you're not as good as that. All it means is that they decided to pick somebody else for whatever reason. And the same thing goes with distribution. You can have your movie done and you could, it could be great. And somebody distributes some piece of crap thing because they think that's going to make more money. It has nothing to do with the quality of your work. And I made certain, I, I, I certainly had times where I was like, you know, down on myself because I didn't tick these boxes that I had, I had set for myself. And it's perfectly fine to set you know, to be ambitious, and I've never stopped being ambitious, but don't, I feel it's important not to judge yourself based on things that you can't control. I think it's more important to ask, like when you're taking criticism from somebody, it's more important to know, like, well, who am I listening to? You know, like, I would much rather take criticism from someone I respect 
than just some like test market of schmoes that decide. You know, that's that's where you can kind of go off the rails. So don't be so hard on yourself. I guess is the is the thing I would say.